hey, hey, lovers, haters, and spectators. Welcome back to another episode of the No Gag Order Podcast. And yes, today's episode is titled, It's an Imposter. Let's talk about it. I have a question for you today. And I really want you to think about this. So I'm going to pose this question. I'm going to give you some time and then I'll start moving through the content or the substance of this episode. So my question for you, how often do you adopt your trauma responses as quote unquote who you are or quote unquote your natural personality? repeat the question just in case you missed it or just in case it stopped you in your track how often do you adopt your trauma responses as quote-unquote who you are or your quote-unquote natural personality and this is where I'm gonna give you a moment to really think about that before I get into the rest of the content and the substance, the meat of this episode. How often do you adopt your trauma responses as who you are or your natural personality? All right, now that I've given you a moment to think about it, now we'll get into the meat of today's episode. So I like to come with detailed information, right? And oftentimes we hear words and not really know what the actual meaning of those words are, definitions and things like that. We run with words. We water down the definition of words by incorrectly using it and overusing certain terminology and verbiage. So I'm going to start out with talking about what exactly is a trauma response. What does that mean? What is that? So a trauma response is the response that we have to trauma in layman's terms or the way that we cope with trauma. That's how we would talk about it in the psychology world. We talk about coping, coping and to cope and coping that's like a, a psychology term or verbiage or um, you know medical terminology in some cases um, but a trauma response is the way that we cope with trauma the way that we have responded to something traumatic that has happened so there are four classic categories for trauma responses and those categories I'm sure you've heard of at least two of them because is something that is used um, all the time. And of course, um, incompletely, uh, because like I said, there's four categories that are like the 
um, main categories for trauma responses. And that would be fight or flight. Those are the two that I'm sure you've heard of. And then there's freeze and fawn, um, which you probably haven't heard of freeze and fawn when talking about your responses to what's happening or what happens, your natural response. Um, But freeze and fawn is the other two in the category. So these are just generalizations of our coping mechanisms. Um, But even within those four generalizations, it can look very different for different traumas. Um, It can look very different based on the need that you may have in that moment. And, you know, your needs change with your growth in life because you're, you're never the same. So at the moment that the trauma is happening, whatever... Um, your need is in that moment, whatever stage of your growth in your life's journey you are at will dictate kind of what your response is. For example, you hear some people say, oh, I was young and dumb, so I made stupid decisions. They correlate their age and how much they had lived through life um, to the decisions that they made. Or, you know, at that time, you know, oh, I was young. I only needed two hours of sleep. And I was up and, you know, so depending on the stage of life, your need may be different. Therefore, your response to trauma will look different because it's what you need in that moment. The other thing is your response could look different based on what has previously happened to you. So let's say something previously happened to you and you had a certain response or a certain coping method and Based on whether or not how successful that method was for you and what you needed, it may dictate what your response is to something similar in the future. Let's say you had a situation happen and you froze and that didn't really serve you well. When something similar happens in the future, you will have a different response because of the success of the first time that happened. Does that make sense? Sidebar. And then I'm going to get back on topic. Me asking if that makes sense is something you're going to hear all the time because it's something that I do in my coaching sessions. It is something that I do in my, I guess you could say, pro bono sessions with my friends and things like that. Whenever I am discussing a topic, whenever I am explaining something, I always do a check-in and I ask, does that make sense? Because it allows me the opportunity to rephrase and rework what it is I'm trying to explain if it is not making sense to your logic because everyone has a different logic. So then I can go back and get other examples or explain it in a different way. Now, of course, you guys, I can't hear y'all when y'all responded, but it is a habit that I say, does that make sense? So I will still do those check-ins because me posing that question gives you a space and an opportunity to reflect on your understanding of what you're hearing. So even though I can't hear your response, it gives you the opportunity to check in with yourself to kind of say, hey, am I understanding this? Do I need to rewind? Do I need to hear that back? If I'm not understanding, maybe I need to listen more intently, etc. So I'm still going to do that by force of habit, but it is still beneficial for you, even though I cannot hear your response. I know it's just me talking to this microphone. So I do want to throw that out there. Now, as Tabitha Brown would say, stay focused. Let's get back on track (laughs) for the topic of today. Essentially, 
like I said, your response may be different based on the success from a previous situation, right? So when traumatic things happen to us, we adapt in whatever way our mind and body needs to be able to keep going. So for example, um, you hear people say, oh, I've blocked that out or I can't remember it. Like the memory is blocked out of my mind. That is what their mind and their body needed in order to be able to keep moving and keep going. So their mind blocks it out. They don't have any recall of exactly what happened. It was a traumatic situation and they can't even, they don't even have the memories because blocking the memory is what their body needed to be able to keep moving and to continue surviving, if that makes sense. Let's talk about it a little bit more in context of the question that I posed, which is how often do we adopt these coping mechanisms as our personality, right? I'll start with an example for myself because, you know, I like to use myself as an example since I have lived the experience and can speak firsthand, right? I am a loyal person, right? My personality type is that I'm a loyal person. Yes. My trauma response is my hyper loyalty. I am loyal to a fault. Okay. And it'll make sense when I go into this a little bit deeper. But essentially, my hyper loyalty came from abandonment issues and the feeling of being disingenuous. The fear that I had from those abandonment issues of being just like those people that hurt me. If I was doing the same thing that they did, which was not being there for me, abandoning me, rejection, etc. So I had this fear of being just like those people by doing the same thing that they did and being that person that wasn't always there for other people. So when I say my hyper loyalty, When people would walk out of my life and then come back, I would be there with my arms wide open and I had the nerve to still be the same caliber of friend to them that I was before they left. I would be loyal. I would be dependable. I would be reliable. And essentially, I would be that ride or die friend as if they never ghosted me as a friend or as if they never accused me of terrible things before they walked out of my life before. So they could be gone for six months, a year, several years. And then when they decide that they want to be friends again, I would pick right back up where we left off. I would still be the same friend. When they called, I was always answering. If they needed help, I was helping. I would give my last. I would do all of these things as if there had been no infraction. So I was hyper loyal to people. I had a hyper loyalty and it came from my abandonment issues. So when they would come back around, I, in my mind, was being just like the people that hurt me and I was being disingenuous and I was being a bad friend if I wasn't there with open arms even though they did something that hurt me previously some people came back with apologies some people came back like they never did nothing like nothing ever happened like they didn't accuse me of something that I would never do as their friend or 
different things like that, right? So the trauma response was being too loyal, being overly loyal, allowing people to walk all over me and things like that because of my abandonment issues. Because I'm always, you know, or was always looking for someone to be there for me. I always wanted someone to consistently be there not abandon me, not reject me, not leave me. I was always there for people, even in times where I shouldn't have been there or in times where I should have had certain boundaries. I did not have them. And I just tell people, oh, yeah, you you know, I'm a super loyal friend and blah, 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 blah. It's okay to be loyal with boundaries. It's okay to be dependable with boundaries. It's okay to do all of these things within... I would say um, acceptable confines, right? There needs to be some type of boundary to certain things in order to protect you and in order to love yourself in a way that's like, no, I'm not going to accept anything and et cetera. I didn't have any of that. And so I just would tell people, oh, it's just my personality. I'm super, super loyal. No, I wasn't loving myself. I was loving other people way more than I was loving me. So, yes, I'm a loyal person when I'm a friend and even, you know, in whatever the relationship is, I'm going to be loyal to that. But now I have boundaries. I've addressed those abandonment issues and rejection issues and things like that. So I have boundaries with it. But for a very long time, I took on that that trauma response of hyper loyalty as, oh, that's just who I am. Another example that I hear or see often with others It's people saying things like, oh, I don't talk much or I'm shy. But in reality, there were situations that happened in their childhood where a parent figure or somebody they were around often told them to be quiet when they would attempt to express themselves. Or even if it wasn't in childhood, if there was a significant relationship that happened, you know, in their teenage years or even in their young adult years, There was a significant person to them that never wanted to hear what they had to say. It's kind of the same thing. So when they attempted to express themselves, whether that was their imagination and storytelling, playing with toys, trying to tell other adults or loved ones about their day and significant events that happened, they were always shushed or told to be quiet. It has an impact on you. If everyone in the family shushed you or ignored you when you were talking and never showed any type of interest in you or what you had to say, that would condition you to stop sharing. You now would have the impression that your words hold no value to other people and that no one wants to hear what you have to say. So you inevitably would talk less to others. You would talk less because you have this idea that what you have to say is not valuable. It's not important to other people. It's only important to you. If you had this idea that your feelings never mattered or held any weight as a child, you would now bottle up your feelings or your feelings would be um, weaponized sometimes. I've seen that where... Um, you know, you were picked on by loved ones or, or whomever. So now you refrain from sharing your true feelings and being vulnerable 
and you chalk that up to, oh, I'm just a private person or I don't like to tell my business. And, and disclaimer, none of the things that I'm giving examples of, I'm not saying that if you have these points of views or you say these things, it means that it's a trauma response. The degree in which you do these things and how you came to these things and if that was really who you were at the core from the time of being a child, you know, a, a, a toddler, that's one thing. But all, more times than not, what happens is the degree that we go to for these things, right? So you um, you say, you know, I don't like to tell my business um, and things like that. You're saying these things are a part of who you are at your core, and in your adult life, you end up adopting these things as, oh, I'm just shy. Um, I'm a person who does not communicate much with others. I don't tell my business. I'm just private. When in reality, based on things that happened to you, you learned that you were more accepted. You were you were loved more or you disappointed people less by not speaking up, by not talking as much, by not sharing how you feel, by not sharing your feelings because somebody took what you said and they use it against you in an argument or they use it against you to judge you and call you all types of names or say that you know you're a baby or you're petty or oh you're weak or whatever it may have been right another example if you were singled out in group settings as a child you likely would have adopted the idea that you are an introvert. So as a trauma response to being singled out in group settings, you now say that you're an introvert. When in reality, you actually enjoy socializing. You love socializing. And when you are socializing, you don't want it to end because you are thoroughly enjoying it. So like, for example, in gym class, if you were the person that no one chose for their team on the playground, the majority of the group or the popular children didn't choose you or choose to include you in their game. At big family gatherings, the other kids didn't actively include you or they actively excluded you from the games that they're playing or whatever the activities are they're doing at this big family gathering or even at work. If you're not chosen to work with your coworkers on projects or your coworkers never want to include you, like let's say there's small group projects that happen and the people in the group are selecting, um, you know, who they work with or the head of that project selects the people that they want to be on the project and you're never selected for small group. You're always excluded. All of these exclusionary things could nurture an isolation trauma response. Because most people, they look at it like this. If I don't put myself in the conditions to be excluded, I won't feel any of the embarrassment or the disappointment or the rejection. I prevent myself from the pain of these things by taking away the opportunity. When in reality, true introverts are people who have a limit on socializing. And once they reach that limit, they need alone time or they need to not socialize in order to balance out their thoughts, emotions, and recharge themselves. True introverts, without the alone time to recharge, they do not operate at their full capacity. 
They are not them, their best selves. They cannot properly function without having the alone time. That is what a true introvert is. They literally cannot socialize all the time. There is a limit on it. And after socializing, they have to recharge. They have to be able to be to themselves with their own thoughts and decompress alone in order to be able to function at full capacity. Another example, someone who says that they are not an affectionate person. So they don't really hug. They don't really engage in PDA or public displays of affection with significant others. They don't really engage in spontaneous physical touch with significant others or children. Now, is this true? Or could it be that as a result of not receiving affection from parents, the desire was suppressed or not receiving affection from people that were significant figures in their life, even if it wasn't a parent, maybe it was suppressed, right? You don't engage in affection with other people you love because you are expecting it to be rejected from when it happened when you were a child or in that significant relationship. So to avoid feeling that rejection, you now don't initiate affection. However, you thoroughly enjoy affection when someone else initiates. You are wildly accepting if someone else does it first or makes it known that they want your affection. You thoroughly enjoy it. You are wildly accepting of it. If that's the case, you may actually need, desire, and crave affection. Or, hear me out, maybe you don't engage in affection because of a traumatic situation that happened with a previous partner after you tried being affectionate with them. For example, let's say um, someone may have met a new person they're dating. They've been dating for a little bit of time. So you're trying to be affectionate, holding their hand, um, being physical with them. But that's all you want to do is be affectionate. And that person forced it to go further than you wanted. That would be an example of a traumatic situation that happened after you tried to display affection. Okay, just to be clear. So now to ensure that you don't go through the same or similar painful situation, you might avoid being affectionate with others altogether, or you only engage in affection after they initiate. And if they have the slightest change in their affection, you completely disconnect from that person because of the fear of having that traumatic situation happen again. So you say, oh, I'm, not, I'm just not an affectionate person. That may not be the case. So now you either don't acknowledge or you don't realize that one of your many love languages is physical touch because you are actively trying to prevent a traumatic situation from happening or you're actively trying to prevent yourself from being hurt or feeling rejection or things that may have happened before. Now you're just like, oh, I'm not affectionate. Are you not an affectionate person? Is that really what it is? Is that really not who you are? If you thoroughly enjoy physical touch and affection when someone else initiates, if you thoroughly enjoy um, public PDA when someone else initiates it, and as long as they're giving it to you, you're soaking it up and it feels really good, you are an affectionate person. 
your trauma response is preventing you from being who you are. All right, so now it's time for you to do some deep soul searching, shadow work, healing work, whatever you want to call it, and find out if you have adopted some of your trauma responses as your personality. Now, of course, this is just a starter, right? This episode and and these questions this is just a place to start. It is not the end all be all. And this is not something that you only do one time and you're done because we're ever growing, we're ever evolving. And a lot of times we think that we've overcome certain traumas and triggers in our life and we don't realize that it's still there. The trigger may have changed. We may have healed one trigger, but there's another that will trigger that same thing. You, you are constantly working on it, Okay. Because we are adaptive creatures. We adapt to be able to survive. We are creatures um, that is all for survival. So since that is the case, we adapt in many ways. We, we change for many things. So there's multiple layers to things as we continue to grow, we continue to adapt. That all may stem from the same situation or a similar trauma or etc. At the root of it, it may all be that thing. Like I was talking about abandonment for me earlier. That is one of my root traumas is abandonment and rejection issues and how I felt about certain things. Um, And it shows up and manifests in a lot of different ways and different relationships for me. Anyway, now you're going to need some quiet time, some thinking time for kind of, you know, this little exercise, right? The first question starting out, you will basically fill in the blank. I'm trying, I want to explain it so I can make sure it comes across properly. This question is not a complete question. It is a question that you will fill in the blank as it pertains to you and your personal journey and where you are. So this first question, as you were listening to this episode, if there was something that resonated, you can take one of the examples out of here, you know, um, the affection or I don't talk much. I'm a real private person. Whatever it was that resonated with you, you can use that as a starting point for these next questions. And then once you go through this and you kind of see how it works, you can examine your life and see other areas and other things that you may do and use the same format and asking these types of questions in order to get to the root of that thing as well. Okay. So the first question, when I was a child between the ages of two years old and six years old, did I blank? In that blank, you might put, did I talk more? Did I tell more stories? Did I hug people more? Does it make sense how I'm saying to fill in the blank? So you're going to say, when I was a child between the ages of two to six years old, did I blank? Then you'll follow that up. Did I enjoy that as a child? Did it make me happy? Did I feel fulfilled as a child doing that, whatever that thing is that you filled in that blank? If so, when do I recall that I stopped being that way or doing that thing? When did I stop talking more? When did I stop hugging people more? Whatever you filled your blank in with. When did I stop being that? When did I stop doing that? What happened 
that made me stop. How did I feel about whatever it was that happened? So how did I feel when the answer to that last question happened? What were the feelings that I had? Was I sad? Was I embarrassed? Was I ashamed? Um, Did I feel rejected? Did I feel abandoned? What was the feeling? Identify the feeling attached to whatever it was that happened. Then you ask yourself, Do I fear feeling that way again? Do I fear feeling ashamed again? Do I fear feeling rejected again? Whatever that feeling was that you identified in the last question, do you have a fear of feeling that again? Then you ask yourself, especially if you're unsure if you have a fear, In order to identify if you do, in fact, have a fear for that thing, you ask yourself, am I actively doing things or actively being a certain way to try to prevent that feeling? Am I actively trying to prevent the hurt? Am I actively trying to prevent the shame? Am I actively trying to prevent feeling rejected? by not allowing the opportunity for those feelings to even be possible? Am I actively trying to prevent feeling rejected by not being vulnerable? By not trying to initiate affection with my significant other? Like, is the reason that I don't do that is because I don't want them to reject me? That is the thing that you kind of need to seek out. And like I said, these questions will get you started And doing this type of introspection will then kind of flow and you'll be able to identify other trauma responses in your life. Now, identifying and addressing these things will make room for you to live and have what you actually want in this life. You'll be able to live like you want to. Let's say, for example, a lot of people are looking for love. They're like, oh, I want thriving relationships. Well, until you do this type of introspection to find out the areas that you may be trying to prevent certain things and where you're holding back and where you're not being completely honest with yourself, you can't be honest in a relationship, right? You keep getting into relationships with affectionate people, but you won't show them affection. And affection is one of their love languages. So, of course, it's not going to work out because they don't receive from you what they need and you're holding it back because you are afraid of rejection. I hope that's making it come full circle. (laughs) I really do hope that it's making it come full circle. Doing this type of introspection and addressing your issues and your traumas absolutely set you up to be able to live the life that you want and to get the things in this life that you desire. So, you go start your forever happy with this growth work that I have kind of set up for you and kind of laid out here. And I'll get to work on the upcoming episode. Again, I go by Coach Jay. Thank you for listening to another episode of the No Gag Order podcast. Until next time. Bye.